0: Welcome to the Daily Standard podcast. It's September 13th, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, and uh, we have, uh, we're have we going to mix things up a little bit. Uh, we are joined by a frequent contributor uh, to the, the Weekly Standard, Dominic Green, who is also the life and arts editor of Spectator USA, and Kelly Jane Torrance of the Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very much.
1: Thanks for having me. Thank us. you.
0: Okay. I want to talk about Jeremy Corbyn. I want to talk about Boris Johnson. I want to talk about uh, British dysfunctional politics because it seems like this this would be a, a good time to take a break from our own dysfunctional uh, at-our-throats politics to talk about what's going on particularly with the conservative party and uh, and it's, with- uh, It's nice Labor. to remember,
1: isn't it, that, that the United States isn't the only country with dysfunctional politics these days.
0: Yeah. I mean, no matter how effed up our politics is, we don't have a Jeremy Corbyn. Yes. Right. I mean, we we really haven't gone that way. You know, I was thinking yesterday that I I can remember the moment during the Bush presidency where George W. Bush goes down uh, in the wake of Hurricane Katrina down to New Orleans and has that moment where, you know, everybody knew that things had, had gone badly. And and I remember having this fantasy in my mind that maybe the president will, will you know will come in and fire some people and and will you know assert the the, the need to get it right. Instead, as we all remember, uh, George W. goes in and says to the head of FEMA, "What was it? A heck of a job, Brownie." And mm-hmm. if there was one moment that was sort of marked the end of the Bush presidency, it might have been that. Was one of those just? Just over the top, tone deaf moments, and you always wonder: Can anybody ever top that? And I and I and I think we I think we have a winner. I do think we have a winner. Donald Trump tweeting out this morning, questioning uh, the death toll from uh, Hurricane Maria in 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 Puerto Rico. Let me just let me just read this. And I, Kelly, I want to get your. Uh, Your response, uh, two tweets, 3,000 people did not die in the two hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico. When I left the island after the storm had hit, they had anywhere from six to 18 deaths. Um, As time went by, it did not go up by much. Then a long time later, they started to report really large numbers like 3,000. And then he followed it up saying, this was done by the Democrats in order to make me look as bad as possible when I was successfully raising billions of dollars to help rebuild Puerto Rico if a person died for any reason like old age just add them onto the list bad politics I love Puerto Rico exclamation point
1: well where to begin Charlie (laughs) right Uh,
0: Maggie Haberman tweeted that uh, there are staffers in the White House right now who are screaming into their pillows
1: (laughs) Uh, well I hope they don't have a uh, a pillow at the office. But no, I, you know, let's let's take you know, let's take it step by step here. So the first thing he says is when I left the island after the storm had hit, they had anywhere from 6 to 18 mm-hmm. deaths, time got did not go up by much. Now, of course, he is thinking that people can only die in the immediate Uh, action of a hurricane. And of course, that, as we know, is completely false. It's the after effects often that are more deadly than the hurricane itself. And I remember it was months, months after the hurricane, that there were still 80% of Puerto Ricans without power. Their electricity took a long time to be restored. And, you know, think about what runs on electricity, everything, not just, you know, your lights, uh, your refrigerator to keep your food safe, but also everything in a hospital. All the machines—they all need electricity to to survive. And you know, sometimes you have a backup generator, and sometimes, uh, if you're if you're in a you know not, not a great place, you don't. So it's really you know it's kind of silly for someone like Donald Trump to claim that well the storm only you know itself only killed. Uh, you know, a couple dozen people no, of course not it's it's obviously the after effects that are the the deadliest and
0: I, I think you are too kind. I don't think the <laughs> word silly I, I think the, 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 the crassness of this I mean if, if you had lost a loved one, if you had experienced something like this, not to mention the fact that for Donald Trump it's not about the dead people in Puerto Rico. it's all about him. And the allegation that it was the Democrats. When, of course, there's you know lengthy academic studies about this. You know, again, he's he's uh, he's making up his own reality. But also the the absolute inability of this man in this moment to show any sort of empathy or compassion. And he he is you know continuing to relitigate this this issue because he 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 will never acknowledge any failures. He can he can never acknowledge. Any shortcomings. And so, you know, as the nation is bracing for this new hurricane, which you know, has 10 million people in its targets for the president to go back and and say, yeah, we did a great job. We did just fantastic job in Puerto Rico. And those people, we shouldn't really count those dead people. You know, even by Trumpian standards. It's pretty remarkable.
1: No, you're right, Charlie, and you bring up an excellent point. And it's not just that, you know, he doesn't even – I mean, he should, but he doesn't even have to admit a shortcoming here. What he needs to do, first of all, is to say that every human life matters, and it's a tragedy when – even a small number of people die. I mean, there's the old, uh, you know, uh, communist saying that one death is a tragedy and a million deaths is a statistic. Well, what about, you know, 3,000? No, I mean, he needs to say that this is awful, that this happened, and he's not, you're right, he's not saying a word of sympathy for those who lost their loved ones. And it is about him. I mean, I, I couldn't believe he said, I was successfully raising billions of dollars to help rebuild Puerto Rico. I mean, A, you're right, he needs to focus on the victims, and B, uh, what? Uh, what were these billions of dollars he raised to help rebuild? I I haven't heard anything about that. I didn't see him have an event, uh, a fundraising event for for the people of Puerto Rico, or you know remember um, you know when the uh, the presidents all came together and to ask uh, you know people to to raise money. I mean maybe that's what he's referring to. He had that little video message because they didn't even want him yeah. at the event. Um, and so yeah, I mean you know tone deaf. I think there you know we need a new new term that goes sort of beyond tome death. Tone right, deaf because do, we, we, this is just beyond... Uh...
0: We, 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 we've, we've run out of all of the adjectives and all of the, of the descriptors. Dominic, do you want to weigh in on all of this? Of course, uh, we're going to get to the dysfunction in British politics, but what does this look like from your perspective? <laughs> well,
2: um, in one sense, um, non-Americans view American politics as being uh, a wild and unpredictable process, and in that sense, all their prejudices were confirmed by the election of Donald Trump. Um, they are, of course... Uh, frightened as as well as alarmed by this kind of thing because it suggests that nobody is at the wheel and the united states has led the democratic world since uh, the second world war and it doesn't seem to be leading them at all and it's left them very much exposed not just the people of puerto rico of course no and
0: uh, that 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 picture painted by uh, Bob Woodward in his book I don't think is going to reassure them in any way about all of this. I'm trying to imagine what it must be like to be Mitch McConnell or or, or Paul Ryan or, or or any of the Republicans running in the midterms right now because you know this is at the moment when you know speaking of, of of you know winds blowing the wrong direction, you know there's some some rather ominous polls um all around the country in races that should not necessarily be that close. I I think I compared it yesterday to uh know a lot of these Senate races it's like a jump ball, but the wind is clearly blowing in the direction of the Democrats now. Republicans want to of course shift the focus onto the economy and the jobs and they have they have a great story to tell actually, but there's no way that they can break through when the President of the United States, the leader of their own party, continually, you know, throws shade on that message. You know, he is the ultimate disruptive force for them. And, it, no, I, you know, whether this moves the needle or not, I don't know. But, but it's a distraction that doesn't seem to be helping him. There are some times when, when the president will, will throw out something outrageous in order to, to distract uh, from something worse. Maybe he thinks he's doing that with the Woodward book. I don't know. But in this particular way, you have to go, oh, really? I mean, honestly, are you, are you, are you, you know, going to be downplaying the death of all of these Americans? You know, you know cynically. Uh, You know, maybe Trump is 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 counting on the fact that most Americans, most other Americans, do not think of Puerto Ricans as Americans. That they don't think of them as, as U.S. citizens, which, of course, they are. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why this has not been a bigger story, which has been baffling. Okay, you know, you know I have to you just get, qu- yep. very
1: quickly. I just have to say, I'm surprised that Donald Trump hasn't yet tweeted the fact, and this is actually true that Puerto Ricans don't pay federal taxes. I'm waiting for him to say, "Well, these guys don't pay federal taxes. Why should we help them?" Um,
0: Three, two, one.
1: <laughs> I shouldn't give him ideas. <laughs> but no, okay. and, and, you know, you bring up you the just, point you about called, Trump distracting That shot. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You know, you bring up the point that a lot of people think that Trump says things to distract, but what's bizarre is how often he himself brings up the negative things people are saying about him. There are times when I hadn't even heard about something negative about Trump until I saw him tweet about it.
0: Oh, all right. Well, let's let's shift across the pond here. Uh, Dominic, you had a piece uh, in the Weekly Standard with the headline, Can Boris Johnson Tory Clown Prince? supplant teresa may so i want to pose that question to you and it seems rather timely today since boris johnson happens to be in town in in your town in fact you're going to go hear him speak at aei later today so can boris johnson supplant teresa may what 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 is going on in within the conservative party over over brexit etc
2: well, I'd, I'd like to rephrase that statement now in the light of uh, subsequent events to, <laughs> is he going to do it at all? The situation is extremely complicated. And it does come down to the numbers. Um, as you know, the public in Britain voted in 2016 to leave the European Union. And, mm-hmm. and in one sense, this is a very detailed, trivial matter for themselves, but it's also an important matter globally because Britain is a part of the uh, Atlantic architecture and the Western system and so on. Um, the government of Theresa May has failed to make any progress... Uh, in negotiations. And not only that, has issued a statement which amounts to walking back from its own promises and undoing the popular vote of 2016. So the numbers are this. There's 197 days to go until Britain leaves the European Union, with or without a deal, 129 of the 317 Conservative MPs voted themselves to leave. And if 48 of them give a letter to the party leadership saying they have no confidence in Theresa May, then there has to be a leadership competition. Because, of course, unlike in the United States... The British system allows the party to pull down the prime minister.
1: How many Americans are wishing uh, they kept the parliamentary <laughs> system at this point? Right? You may be. You yeah. may
2: want to revise this aspect of the. Uh, I'm system.
0: raising my hand right here, just so you, you can't see me. But my hand is up. So
2: now, the the euro sceptics, as they're called, uh, they have. They say the 48 letters in hand. It's rumoured that at least 40 of those letters have already been delivered, so they're just short of pulling the trigger. The problem is the majority of the Conservative MPs aren't in favour of leaving. And there's another big obstacle that Boris Johnson faces, which is this. If you ask the general public who would you like to have leading the Conservative Party, they'll say Boris. If you ask the Conservative Party's membership who they'd like, they say Boris. But if you ask the MPs in Parliament, they don't like him and they don't trust him. So can Boris do it? It remains to be seen. There are real doubts about his temperament. If it was sports, they'd say there are doubts about how he handles the big games.
0: To talk about that for for a moment, because you know, I'm the, the one of my first encounters with with Boris Johnson. Well, that's actually when, when I really started thinking about him seriously was when I read uh, his book about Winston Churchill, and I was I was I was impressed by that. But tell me why you call him the Tory cl- clown prince?
2: Well, he is. Uh, he has said that uh, British politics needs a Donald Trump. And um, he is obviously styling himself in that role. He is a natural entertainer and he's a comedian. He's a very good writer. Um, he is. But yeah, I
1: have to say, you know, uh, for all everything I think about Boris Johnson as an editor, it would be kind of cool to see an editor, a former editor, become prime minister of Britain. You know, he edited The Spectator, mm-hmm. which, of course, uh, the parent of Spectator, you say, which uh, yes, Dominic and I yes. both write for.
2: Yes, yes, he did. I mean, it's customary in in British politics. um, Whenever uh, somebody is in in the wilderness and on their own, they say, well, Churchill was in the wilderness and he was proved right (laughs) in the end. So this is a very good strategy. Um, I, I don't know if he is a Churchillian figure. I don't think the scale of British politics can really accommodate a Churchillian figure. What it can do is accommodate a media friendly entertainer. And as the United States shows, you can go a very long way as a media friendly entertainer in politics. But as I said, there are serious procedural obstacles in his way. I believe that if he is blocked at this moment, then the British could be heading for a real crisis of democracy because more than half the country has voted to leave. And if they're not given that, it will be very obvious that their democratic will is being completely ignored by the conservative party in parliament. And at the moment, they're afraid of the public. But the polls also show that only Boris Johnson can stop Jeremy Corbyn, who is a very hard left labor leader, getting into parliament in the next election.
1: You know, and I just have to say that's that's a very interesting point Mm -hmm. because – it's really a big part of why a lot of Brits voted to leave the EU is that they wanted their sovereignty back. They felt that they were being ruled by bureaucrats from Brussels, and so now they're they're almost facing a similar problem uh, at at home. Um, and one thing I wanted to ask you about is, I, you know, your piece was great, and one thing I liked Thank about you. it is you talked about you talked about the two Borises. That the, maybe you can uh, tell the listeners who ha- who maybe haven't read the piece yet uh, about that.
2: Well, I think one of them is an extremely, is the modern figure we recognize, a kind of English Berlusconi, Boris Sconi, who who is an entertainer. Uh, Boris was, was a journalist, Berlusconi was a singer uh, before they went into politics. And the other is a very traditional, uh, well-bred, well-educated uh, English politician who uh, sees it as being a game for the preserve of his class. And uh, he could do a good job of, of either. The question is, which is the real Boris and where, where does the real substance of his personality lie?
0: I, I just want to. I want to read you um, from 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 your piece, Dominic, where you describe you know his him as an entertainer. Uh, they they know the, the voters know. They know that Johnson is a man. A man to whom embarrassment is as water to the duck's back. They know he is good for a laugh, and they enjoy his slapstick, bumbling, and verbose P.G. Woodhouse Woodhouse routines, all serious compliments in a land where no joke goes on crack and quite possibly sufficient to win him the highest office in British politics. So, you know, in terms of, you know, quite frankly, the way you describe him, Boris Johnson sounds, you know, dramatically more um, entertaining than Donald Trump.
2: Well, he, he is a, a sharper entity. He's a wit, I would say, rather than merely being angry or, or obnoxious. He's very funny. But he's using this uh, to outflank his own party. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, he's created enormous controversy. Uh, he wrote an article um, opposing the banning of the burqa and the niqab, as in other European countries. But the language he used, comparing these these items of clothing to, to making women look like human letterboxes, mm. uh, caused an outcry. And similarly, he said that this week that Theresa May's plans for a deal... With Brussels amounted to putting a suicide vest on the uh, British Constitution, which um, you know m- one of his fellow MPs who had witnessed the results of a suicide bombing while on military duty in Afghanistan pointed out is not the kind of language that, that a leader should be using, and and I think Johnson knows exactly what he's doing when he's doing this. He's playing a, a populist game, and his own party are terrified of the people at the moment. They they are very much conscious that they're going to be held to account for their failure to make a deal and and. Also for the 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 slowing down of the British economy in the face of this uncertainty.
0: So I'm 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 trying to think who who the parallel would be in American politics. Uh, Let's leave out uh, Donald Trump
1: because they both have amazing hair.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my yes. Um, Although I think that Boris Johnson spends less time on it. I hope so. Then, <laughs> then, then, then Trump. It's almost like it's a little bit a little bit Newt Gingrich, a little bit Mike Huckabee, a little bit
2: what?
1: You know, Anybody it's in, it, you know, uh, I, Huey you know,
2: Long, I think. There's a bit of Huey Long. About. Okay, that's he's a, good. He's a barnstormer, mm-hmm. and he's really a party of one.
1: No, that's a that's a great point. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other, you know, and and you know, when when Dominic talks about the two Borises and the the you know a consummate establishment politician, is sort of vying with this uh, populist. Rabble rouser. It's you know, you've got to think about the. Of course, we you know in this country we always talk about that the British still have a class system and you know I remember uh, well I don't remember I I was uh, too young then but reading about it you know people saying Margaret Thatcher you know the greengrocer's daughter um, and so you know it is British politics really is ruled by you know the old Etonians and uh, you know the public school boys and it's you know here it's it's mm. there's a certain amount of that I mean, you have a lot of lawyers in in Congress and. And that, but it's a little different. I mean, you know, really, it is the case that any any person in America could could dream. Well, if they're a citizen, a natural born citizen, of course, could dream of becoming president of the United States. And I think, you know, tell and me we if I'm wrong. It. <laughs> Thank you, Charlie. Now you got the proved, shot. And we proved it good and, and hard. And, and tell me, tell me if I'm wrong, Dominic. But it, it seems like it's a lot. It's a lot harder. I mean, Boris Johnson's got that sort of. He's, he talks the populist talk and can walk the walk, but he's he's not somebody. Just I mean, like, like Donald Trump, really, who who came. From from nothing, and is sort of a, a representative of the people in a in a personal uh, way with his own story. And, and can someone like that ha- become prime minister? Uh,
2: yes, still very much. I mean, he, he's a paternalist in the sense that he thinks he's born to be <laughs> the the father of the people. Um, social mobility of that kind has actually declined in Britain. It increased sharply uh, after the Second World War. Most of the prime ministers were state educated, even if they had been through Oxford or Cambridge. Not all of them even went to university. Some of them went straight from the military and into the professions. That Winston Church? Yeah, this is reversed uh, subsequently. Uh, David Cameron was very much out of the mold of Eton, which I think has produced 18 or 19 of the Mm. 40-odd British prime ministers. And Boris was at school with Cameron.
0: now you you raised uh, one of the most important points, of course, and I wanted to move from Boris Johnson to uh, you know, a, a figure who is genuinely frightening uh, to uh, to a lot of a lot of Americans and obviously a lot of Brits as well. Jeremy Corbyn. and if i uh, if I heard you correctly, Dominic, you're saying that the polls are showing right now that in a general election, uh, only Boris Johnson can stop uh, the British electorate from. From putting the Labor Party in power, a Labor Party headed by somebody who appears to be a virulent virulent and quite dishonest anti-Semite.
2: It's absolutely astounding what the revival of it. Yeah, this is a, this, and this is part of a wider phenomenon, which is the revival of socialism, um, which mm. is allowed in the old hard left, who are always lurking in relatively small numbers. They've effectively managed to take over the party machinery of what, under Tony Blair, was a centre-left um, party in the style of Bill Clinton, and they have dr- driven it hard to the left. And they have harnessed a great deal of popular resentment. I'm not saying that 40% of British people would consider voting for Jeremy Corbyn because he's an anti-Semite, but they will consider voting for him despite the fact that he is an anti-Semite because uh, for one reason or another they wish to avenge themselves upon the conservatives who imposed a a long period of, of austerity economics after 2008 and have now completely bungled the Brexit negotiations which is the most important moment I think in British history since the Suez crisis. So there's a lot of people who are extremely angry and Corbyn is harnessing that.
0: I can understand the shift to the left. That's always been a, a potential, and that may happen with the Democratic Party here, uh, with, mm. with you, either with Elizabeth Warren or, or Bernie Sanders. Uh, what I'm less clear about, and and you you did clarify that the people would vote for them, you know, in spite of uh, or you know, in spite of the anti-Semitism. But how explain how, that factor? Because that is not something we're seeing here really on the left. Now I, w- I want to put an asterisk there. You know, you you do have the, you know, boycott divest uh, is Israel, mm, but that mm. really is, you know, far 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 from the mainstream of, of democratic party Although politics. Although it
1: is it, it has actually become a bit of an issue uh, bit, of dirty yeah. politics in the New York uh Democratic right. gubernatorial primary with Cynthia Nixon and Andrew Cuomo.
0: Yeah, no that, yeah. that 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 is out there, but it's also an indication that uh, and I just don't see it as as as, as as center as playing a central role the way it, it appears to be playing now in British politics. So is just talk, Dominic. If you could just give me some some sense of 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 anti-Semitism in in Britain and mm. why it's there.
2: Well, there are three strands to this, I believe. One of them is the traditional historic form of anti-Semitism, which is fairly low lying and and, fair, and less prominent, it has to be said, than in most European societies. The traditional attitudes of anti-Semitism appear in roughly slightly higher incidence in Britain than they do uh, in the United States. The second strand of this is the uh, committed worldview of the revolutionary left, in which the are identified with capitalism and therefore have to go along with capitalism. And the third of it is uh, the alliance that the Labour Party has made in the cities with uh, Muslim immigrant communities, who also have a, hmm. a hard, unreconstructed medieval view, um, which we, you know, is an equivalent form of anti-Semitism. And these two things tend to feed off each other. They call it in Europe the the red-green alliance. It's a feature of urban politics now in virtually every Western European country. And this has put fuel, perhaps. Under uh, the left of the Labour Party, it's 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 encouraged them uh, to to play as it were the play the the anti-Semitic card. And as it, I said, there's a certain yeah. receptivity there still in British society. Are
0: are, are there a prominent Labour figures who are pushing back against this? Who are speaking out, denouncing uh, Jeremy Corbyn and the anti-Semites?
2: Uh, yes, they are, and and a lot of membership as well. Um, there have been um. MPs who've refused uh, to follow the whip, to follow um, orders on how to vote, which is the, the strongest form of rebellion. The Corbynites are trying to deselect them at the local level, to actually have them pulled out of their seat before an election for an alleged uh, you know, procedural misdemeanors. Um, there's a war going on inside the Labour Party for the soul of the party. The mm-hmm. centrists, the Blairites, are talking, and and this is a very interesting development, they're talking about forming a new party in coalition with the anti-Brexit centrist conservatives who are being, in in their own way, pushed out of power and out of control in their party uh, by the Brexit wave, so um, British politics. How,
0: how plausible is that? How likely is that? It's, I
2: mean, it's possible that it could happen because we do already have a third party in Britain, right. and and it ended up in coalition for the first time in a century in, in the 2011 elections. Um, most of the time, however, it doesn't support a third party. It's not as inhospitable to one as the United States is, but it's it's not you know good for one. It's very possible that people will try and form one or would, or would join one. I don't see it in the long term as having a, a real future. Sooner or later, one way or another, this Brexit issue will revolve itself, resolve itself, and then we'll be back down to two major parties.
1: You know, I, I find that interesting that, mm. uh, you know, as Dominic says, that there are, you know, it's, it's like they'd rather try to kick out duly elected uh, members of parliament than to disavow anti-semitism and you know you sort of you know there's always issues with different parts of a party's base that that have some disagreement mm-hmm. you know I always point to the Keystone pipeline decision uh, in this country President Obama had to decide between labor which wanted the pipeline because it was going to bring a lot of high-paying union jobs and environmentalists who didn't want anything to do with a pipeline and o- President Obama chose the environmentalists um, now both those people have you know different uh, different values different interests uh, interests. But it's really kind of kind of shocking to see in Britain that the the the, the the, the parts of the base that they're they are choosing amongst, I mean, it seems to me, and, you know, tell me what you think, Dominic, that that Jeremy Corbyn and his acolytes are, are deciding that they need to work with, as you say, uh, a lot of the, um, you know, Muslim uh, immigrant communities in the cities. And, of course, cities is, uh, you know, labor has, on the whole, more more support in the cities than in, in the more rural areas. They're choosing them over um you know, basically, anybody who thinks that it's it's shocking um, to suggest that. Um that, that anti-Semitism has absolutely no place in, in British society. Yes,
2: and I think in, in any normal time this would be the case and and they would be on 15 or 20 percent. But this is not a normal time in British politics as it is isn't in mm. American politics. And the result is because of this uncertainty and incompetence, um, they have become the party of, of protest despite, as you're saying um, – being um, frequently publicly anti-Semitic. And this re- it is running from the top to the bottom of the party. And the longer it has gone on, the more the, the radical left of the Labour Party has taken over the party machinery, which, as Lenin always said, was it was the main objective is actually to control the party because once you have that, you know, everything will follow. And they followed this book. They've waited for 30-odd years and been given the opportunity by the, the collapse of the centrist, centrist Labour Party, uh, which has no real beliefs apart from imperfect Fascinating, the conservatives, and, and simultaneously the collapse also of the sort of centrist conservative party, which had no real belief other than getting elected in the way Tony Blair did with Labour. <laughs> so the extremes, and I wouldn't say they're equivalent at all, because, um, because they're not at all. The extremes, the anti-Semitic revolutionary left of the Labour Party and the uncompromising hard Brexit wing of the Conservative Party, have both captured big public constituencies in a way that they didn't at any previous point. I'm, I've
0: been reading a number of accounts about how alarmed British Jews are by all of this, and and then of course we had the uh, the blow up in the last uh, several days when uh, uh, Rabbi uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs uh, really I I don't know how whether he'd been overtly political before all of this, um, but he very strongly came out with a denunciation of of Jeremy Corbyn, and, and that apparently has has sparked quite a, uh, a quite a back and forth. Um, so what w- was you know what? What is the mood among the in, in within the Jewish community? In, in well, Britain I mean, right my now?
2: understanding is that the mood among among Jews in Britain is not as uh, alarmed as it is, say, among Jews in France. In fact, mm. lots of Jews from France have moved to London, where they now have you know French language services run in parallel at major synagogues in London because so many have arrived. On the other hand, the mood is is that there is no under such circumstances no medium to long term future and I'm hearing stories of people leaving and wishing they had done earlier Jonathan Sachs um, is generally uh, strenuously apolitical figure he's also a a moral figure globally and and his intervention in this is absolutely astounding so too was the phenomenon of all of the uh, English Jewish newspapers running the same editorial criticising Corbyn on their front page at the same time because Hmm. as the the, the, the Jewish joke goes if you have two Jews you have three opinions well in this case you had three newspapers and they all said the same thing which is this is you know what is going on
0: uh, one more in, in, in the time that we have left since we're, we're we're on interesting things that people in Britain are saying you still <laughs> probably saw the the headline in the Washington Post indicting Amazon.com the Archbishop of Canterbury slams modern capitalism as the reincarnation of an ancient evil uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, targeted Amazon in a denunciation of corporate greed and gaping inequality, themes that have become the stock in trade of the leader of the Church of England and former oil executive, who's warned the country is facing a crisis of capitalism, fueling extremism and ethnic tensions. So we have another faith leader. Um, really, you know, injecting himself into uh, the political debate. Yes, uh, so yes. why, why why is the Archbishop of Canterbury singling out Amazon? And why does he think capitalism is the reincarnation of an ancient evil?
2: Well, it, it depends how you do it. I mean, the idea of paying people for piecework, in other words, like Uber or Lyft, paying them for the job they're doing without giving any benefits. I mean, that's how I've always worked as a freelancer. But then I like what I do, and I choose to do it. If I was a nurse, or I was, if I was a teacher, I probably wouldn't want to be working under those circumstances. But there rise of, of zero-hours contracts, as they're called in Britain, has most definitely affected people. Um, I don't think it's What, what, what is a zero-hour t- um, contract? It, it's a contract where you basically are, are given no guarantee of how many hours you'll okay. be working. You're given no long-term security or benefits, and you can be effectively sent a text message in the morning telling you you're needed in two hours' time. Um, and public services are now using these kind of contracts. As I said, I work under those conditions, and I'm yeah, perfectly it, happy it to. Sounds, but, that
0: sounds like my, my daily life. <laughs> exactly.
2: I wouldn't want to inflict it on other <laughs> yeah. people. Um, I don't think it increases ethnic tensions at at all, incidentally, in that um, everybody is exposed to these things. But look, in the 19th century, we called this uh, sweatshop work, piecework. This is what you did. You got paid only according to the number of units you produced. Uh, and there, it was a great thing that we reduced that kind of, and it is servitude. There is no other word for it. It's dependency, because people are not able to accumulate savings or, have, or be able to plan for the future. And so I, I do, to be honest, I rarely find myself agreeing with the Archbishop of Cantery when it comes to these ill-advised interventions into public. Public life but on this one I think he's really called it you can't take half of people's money in taxes and then say no we're not going to guarantee you any kind of security in return and that effectively is a situation which lots of middle-class people not just in Britain also in the United States are finding themselves now and so it can't be surprising that they will then look to extreme uh, parties or or to divisive or disruptive politicians because their lives have already been disrupted
1: what do you know Charlie do you think we, there's yes, a sir. fine line between you know sweatshops piecework uh, versus division of labor which of course uh, a Brits uh, Scottish uh, Adam Smith uh, discussed and which really I think division of labor made uh, you know uh, Western society more prosperous than it's ever been it's it's kind of a, a fine line between those don't don't you think or do you disagree
0: well I do think there's a distinction but you know I and obviously there's a lot of things that are disrupting the the job market you know what 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 is one person servitude is another person's opportunity um, you know a, a way to get into the job market and at least in this country my experience has been that a lot of the people who are doing some of that uh, that uh, piecework type thing are doing that as supplemental income but you know what makes me think about, one of the things that I don't think the pol- either political, um, you know, ideological camp has really any answers for. You know, how many disruptive technologies are are coming our way? Mm. Um, you know, what will artificial intelligence do? How many, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of jobs will be made redundant as the result of this? You know, imagine when we have self-driving cars uh, with uh, or with the the advent of 5G. I don't think. That people have really thought through how the economy in the next twenty or thirty years is going to be disrupted. This is I mean, Jeremy Corbyn's
2: dream. This is uh, yeah, yeah it
0: well, is.
1: and you know, it's yeah. it, Dominic brings up a, a great point: is you have these mm. changes in the economy, but has government changed no. in reaction mm. to them? No. And so you have these these higher high taxes um, in a situation where where people are changing how they how they work. And so yeah, like Dominic says, you know, how can a government? expect to keep taking half your money, um, but cutting cutting back services. I mean, something something has to give at some point.
2: Mm. I think a mm-hmm. lot of the people yeah. who, who have uh, been most disruptive in recent years have been the least likely to vote. And of course, that is now starting to change if we're going to see the automation of what used to be prestigious white-collar jobs, for instance, the automation of medicine. And at that point, you have a very large number of people uh, who are property owners, who consider themselves to be the, the substantial centre of the society, dealing with conditions of uncertainty and economic dependence, which they used to think uh, only happened to the to the lazy or to, yeah. the, uh, to the less deserving. In other words, this is, the in a way, there's a possibility of the dream of Karl Marx and Jeremy Corbyn being fulfilled, which is a critical mass of voting middle-class property owners who are absolutely furious at a system they feel has betrayed them and our political class of course well they're the last people to be handling this we're told that the skill set say for silicon valley is such that you know you have eight ten years before you're you're on the the dust heap and therefore you should embrace uncertainty you know and go for it well most people's work isn't like that but politicians funnily enough they've become the sort of people whose expertise does run out very quickly, because without realizing it, they are at the sharp end of technological change. You know, it's interesting
0: that you know, given this conversation, how uh, right before we started this podcast, I was reading a story about the the, the steel industry, that uh, that the president's economic uh, policy seems to be rather than looking ahead to this disruptive economy, uh, he seems to have this nostalgia for you know restoring the economy that existed back in the 1950s and the 1960s. so you get the tariffs to bring back uh, you know a steel jobs. That's uh, a great force. You reinforce the coal industry when in fact, it's like, hello, you understand what's coming down the, the road. you know I mean I, I, obviously, if, if you're working in the steel industry right now, you know this is this is a good moment. But it doesn't seem to be preparing us to be dealing with, with what, what you're describing here.
1: You no, know, that's a great point, Charlie. And I have to say, you know, to be an equal opportunity here, um, uh, President Obama also talked a lot about wanting to bring back manufacturing jobs. And both President Trump and President Obama really emphasized this. And I have to say I always found it puzzling. I mean, you know, my dad didn't graduate from high school. And he wanted me to get an education so I didn't have to work. And by that he meant manual labor. He wanted me. Uh, not to have to be toiling in a factory or outside uh, building houses like he did. And so I do find it strange in some ways that, you know, the last – the current and last president emphasized those kinds of jobs. I mean, yes, it's it's been destructive and there's – it's it's awful for for people who've lost those jobs. But, you know, that – in a way, though, it's good that their – our economy has changed such so that we do less manufacturing and we have people in really uh, healthier um, – Less onerous jobs, and it's it's interesting that that's something that President Obama and uh, President Trump share in common. And I have to say, you know, maybe it's just because I'm a, I'm a I'm a wee, I'm a bit of a weakling, but uh, I'm I'm happy that that the economy has has shifted away from manufacturing in some mm-hmm. ways and towards the kind of job that I am going to be better at. And I think a lot of Americans, um, you know. Uh, uh, feel the same way I do. I think, yeah, you know, in, you, a in, lot of blue-collar people, sure. they want their... They save and put, get money to put their children in university so that they can do that and move away from the kind of jobs they had because they want well, more for their children.
0: You know, tw- 20 years from now, uh, you know, more than half of Americans will be having their own podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> because <those will> be-
2: <laughs> <And> <laughs> it's a nightmarish it future. Be- uh.
0: <laughs> so speaking of the future, I have to make a confession. Um, you know, particularly, you know, Kelly might find this interesting. I I actually sat down this morning to write a piece for the Weekly Standard about uh, Republicans and the the national debt and the deficits uh, you know Mitt Romney put out a statement saying you know the Republicans have stopped talking about the the, the national debt and you know House Republicans are getting prepared to make the the, uh, the the tax cuts permanent and I sat down to write it and I thought you know what Nope, nobody cares. <laughs> oh,
1: that's no, so sad. <laughs> no,
0: no one, and, but I'm right, aren't I? I mean, no one. I, mean, I, I always think of as a reader. If I, if I open up a piece like, okay, here's the thing about the national debt, the national deficit, my eyes would glaze over. So you know, once again, I'm admitting that that I'm part of the problem. I mean, I, I, uh, you know, Dominic, you may not re- you know know that I'm, and I'm I'm from Wisconsin right now, and you know, mm. basically you know, have been associated with Paul Ryan and Paul Ryan's been into politics for the last uh, 20 years. So, you know, silly me, I actually believed all of those discussions about the (laughs) debt bomb and the crisis of the deficit. I probably had him on my old radio show, you know, um, you know, three or four dozen times talking about the same sort of thing. And it is it is amazing to me to watch how that issue has just vanished, to watch a Mm -hmm. Republican led government, uh, now presiding over trillion dollar a year deficits, and no one uh, is taking it seriously, and and not even I could bring myself to write an article because I just figured nobody nobody I'm, I'm don't be to part of this, the problem no, no nobody Charlie. gives a
1: shit don't be part of the problem Charlie well <laughs> you, know, you you bring up a good point well first of all uh, some of you know some of the Republicans who who did. Care a lot about this issue, um, are have, have uh, decided they're going to be ending their careers uh, basically because of Donald Trump, and I'm thinking here of Bob Corker and Jeff Flake. There's two people who uh, there are two people I think who who did discuss these issues more than the Republican average, and the other thing, of course, is that it's it's something that people i mean the reason we have this this increasing debt is because we are borrowing more money spending more money and we're just putting it off we're thinking okay you know uh, next generation can worry about it and then that generation comes and they you know they they keep pushing it off and people seem to think that we can just keep pushing it off indefinitely and of course for politicians uh, there's very much an incentive To do this because they just want to keep getting reelected so they you know they want to spend a lot of money and then just push it off and let the next politician
0: because i'm the optimist in the group i can just sort of imagine that this debt bomb explodes right about the time that all of this you know employment and economic bomb explodes that, you know, well, it's possible. Jeremy Corbyn's yeah. uh, economic fantasy. Well,
1: and by the way, I just want to say, I'm surprised note. Donald Trump doesn't say more about this because who owns a lot of the U.S. debt? It's China. I'm surprised. You know, Donald Trump could do a great thing and say, listen, do we want to have this problem accelerate and maybe explode like you're saying? And then the Chinese will be our new overlords.
2: Well, we have a problem. I mean, there's a fancy French, French word, which is the the problem and also uh, the reason that we can keep running up the, the deficit, which is seigneurage, which is the advantage of having the world's reserve currency. So long as the dollar mm-hmm. is in that position, then uh, you know it's hard to dislodge the United States, and it's hard to see the dollar stumbling. On the other hand, you know this this has happened before in history, and uh, it, the, the prospect of that, however, has receded in recent years. You know, if you'd ask somebody in the late 90s, they would have said, "Well, the euro is being created as the future reserve currency, and the Chinese were buying lots of euros in order to build it up as a potential future reserve." And um, so the oil states, the OPEC states, were all also, investing in the euro as a as the counterweight politically and economically to the dollar and of course the euro has, has gone badly wrong since then and that's one reason why all this money from around the world is flooding into dollars still despite the fact the debt is going up and up
1: and China seems to have uh, you know they've been trying to to get their currency to uh, you know mm-hmm. be considered uh, you know one of these but they've been they've been very unsuccessful well they have a
2: transparency problem exactly. Course, and, and we, exactly and we don't because you just have to switch on twitter to see exactly what the supreme leader has on his mind that <laughs> exactly. morning
0: yeah well <laughs> we uh i mean if you if you look at the charts by the way of what's been happening with the stock exchanges here in this country versus in china um you know obviously very diverging lines listen thank you for joining me i appreciate it very much uh dominic dominic green and and Kelly Jane Torrance, I appreciate this very much. And uh, thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll be doing this all over again.